Esther chapter 6, verse 1 through 11. On that night, the king could not sleep, and he gave orders to bring the book of memorable deeds, the chronicles, and they were read before the king. And it was found written how Mordecai had told about Bigthana and Teresh, two of the king's eunuchs who guarded the threshold and who had sought to lay hands on King Ahasuerus. And the king said, What honor or distinction has been bestowed on Mordecai for this? The king's young men who attended him said, Nothing has been done for him. And the king said, Who is in this court? Now Haman had just entered the outer court of the king's palace to speak to the king about having Mordecai hanged on the gallows that he had prepared for him. And the king's young men told him, Haman is there, standing in the court. And the king said, let him come in. So Haman came in and the king said to him, what should be done to the man whom the king delights to honor? And Haman said to himself, whom would the king delight to honor more than me? And Haman said to the king, for the man whom the king delights to honor, let royal robes be brought, which the king has worn, and the horse that the king has ridden, and on whose head a royal crown is set. And let the robes and the horse be handed over to one of the king's most noble officials. Let them dress the man whom the king delights to honor, and let them lead him on the horse through the square of the city, proclaiming before him, Thus shall it be done to the man whom the king delights to honor. Then the king said to Haman, Hurry, take the robes and the horse as you have said, and do so to Mordecai the Jew who sits at the king's gate. Leave out nothing that you have mentioned. So Haman took the robes and the horse, and he dressed Mordecai and led him through the square of the city, proclaiming before him, Thus shall it be done to the man whom the king delights to honor. Reading God's word. Going back through Roman, Roman through Romans, just to be clear, starting next Sunday, this will be almost all guys next Sunday, there will be a discussion group right after the service so that you will, there'll be questions ready to go. And then for people who are either in small groups already or you would like to join during the week, Sundays isn't great. You can either, there's a Zoom group that meets Wednesday nights and a, uh, there's also going to be, we'd like to form a couple other groups to meet. You, you need to let us know if you'd like to participate in a small group, and the sign-up sheets are on the square, are on the uh, table, the rectangular table, as you go out. So just to be absolutely clear about what we're asking, because those groups will start next week, and then the midweek groups after that. So, well, we are about to finish up a quick study in the book of Esther and Romans. Next week on Rome, on 828, we will start the book of Romans. So that's appropriate. Um, <coughs> excuse me. We will um, today finish up this quick study in the book of Esther that we have been looking at. And uh, today it's really interesting because the, um, the, the story of uh, Esther in many ways hinges on the most ordinary of things, of a sleepless night. How many of you now, once you've reached a certain age, wake up in the middle of the night and have a hard time going back to sleep? Yeah, I see that age, the gray hair, the ball. When I was, boy, when I was 10, 10, 20, 30, no problem. Sleep was, you know, I didn't know 3 a.m. existed. Now, it's hard. What do you do when you wake up 
in a sleepless night, right? Just irritated or, you know, thank God for Kindle or get up and work or whatever it is. It's just, it's, it's frustrating and yet so ordinary. What we're going to see is the Bible tells the story of this potential genocide of the Jewish people living in Persia hinges on a sleepless night. And what God orchestrating the circumstances behind the scenes did. So let's, let's jump back into the book of Esther. This book helps us understand, helps the Jews understand as well as us, God is still working even when they're in exile, even when they don't see him, even when he's not mentioned in this book, God is still there. God is still present. So it's helping the Jewish people to understand where are you, God, during this time where we're under the thumb of an evil and oppressive regime. So we've seen how Esther risked approaching the king, even though there was risk to her, that she was told by Mordecai that she should use her privilege as the queen. And she does so, and because of her obedience in that, she's now uh, been granted by the king. He says, you know, whatever you want. And what does she say? She says, well, what I really want to do is just give you and Haman, the evil Haman, who wants, who's orchestrating this uh, extermination of the Jews, says, I want to give you guys a feast. I want to, to have you all for dinner, basically. So last week we looked at, she pushed all of her chips in. She held nothing back. She was willing to go in to the presence, and she said, if I perish, I perish. She held nothing back from God, and God was able then to use her obedience in that full-on surrender. Mordecai, who we read about this morning, her uncle who had raised her, she was an orphan. He was her, basically her guardian and a relative. His own journey in this was the obedience to not bow to the vanity of Haman, number two man in the kingdom, who had said, people should bow to me. And he was able to get that edict going. And Mordecai, not wanting to violate the commandments of only bowing to the Lord his God, decided not to obey that edict from Haman. That enraged Haman, and so this begins the story of how he's going to uh, try to come against all the Jews enraged by Mordecai's unwillingness to bow to him. The remainder of the book of Esther, from this point on, is I'm going to introduce you to a new word, probably, so get your word power on, right? The word is peripety, okay? Peripety. It's just fun to say, peripety, right? Peripety, you know, we all know what it is, just don't know what the, you know, we don't know that word, but we know what it, the definition, which is a complete reversal of circumstances in an instant. It was very common in Greek uh, tragedy, Sophocles and all these guys writing, they would completely turn around. Someone was headed one direction, circumstances would come into play and it would completely flip around, either for good or for ill. All of Esther, the rest of this book is going to be a complete reversal of circumstances. And it's going to come about through three things. It's, we've, we've talked about two of them. It's going to come about through Esther's risky faith, Mordecai's risky obedience, and God's operating through circumstances. Those three things are going to flip everything on their heads. 
So, let's just be clear on the plot here and what's happening. This isn't just a literary device. It's the point of the book of Esther. All right. So, after Haman has taken offense at Mordecai and ordered an extermination of the Jews, he has gotten the king to sign off. The king has given his signet ring, which is his symbol of authority to Haman, to do whatever he wants. The king is not a good man. He's a vain man, greedy guy, and Haman gets him to do this in order that the Jewish assets would flow into the kingdom. That's what we're, we're told. So... Uh, Esther has now approached the king, gotten permission. He's raised his scepter to allow her to come in, to her to come into his presence without the punishment, since it was illegal to come into the presence of the king uninvited. But she was granted permission to do so. She invites Haman and uh, the king to dinner. They have the banquet, and he says again. The king says again, "All right, whatever you want, whatever you want. What do you what do you want, Esther?" She says, I, I'd like to give a second banquet tomorrow night. Okay, what's going on there? Find out in a minute. Between banquet number one, the night, banquet number two, that's what Sarah read to us this morning. If you got your Bible, would you open to Esther chapter 6? We're going to see this very ordinary circumstance that all of us old guys happen to have. On the night the king could not sleep, he gave orders to bring the book of memorable deeds. Maybe we all should have a book of memorable deeds, right? This, the Chronicles. It's like reading the minutes, the, the elders' minutes at the session. It's good, good, good for insomnia. The Chronicles. And they were read before the king. And it just so happened, just so happened, that what he read... The Chronicles was an event that had happened sometime before. We have it recorded several chapters earlier in Esther, where Mordecai, this Jew, had revealed a plot of assassination of the king. He had told Esther, who had told the king, and the two perpetrators had been caught and apprehended and done away with. And the king says, have we ever done anything for this guy? No, we haven't done anything. Who's around? Which one of my advisors is in the court? And Haman's there. He just happens to be up too, probably plotting evil things. And so he says, bring him in. And then he says, well, you know, what shall be done? And Haman, being the vain guy he is, he says, it must be me he wants to honor. So he gives him this long spiel about what we should do to honor him. And he says, good, go and honor Mordecai, peripety, right? There's a reversal of circumstances. Haman thinks he's going to be honored. He wants to kill Mordecai. Instead, Haman has to honor Mordecai. And Haman is so enraged by this that it says he comes back to his wife, who's no prize in and of herself, and she says, why don't you just hang this guy on an even bigger gallows? Build the gallows to end all gallows, 75 feet. Now, the word for gallows, interestingly enough, in the Hebrew is the word es. And it's translated, it's a very common word, hundreds of times translated, just E-S. And it's almost always translated tree or piece of wood. We do a gallows because it just wouldn't make sense to say, put up a big piece of wood. We just wouldn't think of that. But it was an instrument of death. S isn't always an instrument of death, but in this context it would be. So it's interesting. It says, put up right in the center of the capital, 75 feet high, a big old piece of wood, probably like just a spike, because we're going to get them. 
this guy has made a fool of me. And Haman, being the number two man and a vain man, couldn't stand that. So his wife said, put up the biggest gallows and let's do him in. This is between one sleepless night, between banquet one and banquet two. And now we have banquet two. Now, Haman's unaware of Esther's Jewish heritage. She know, he knows Mordecai's a Jew, but not Esther. And so he's just honored, and again, his vanity is soothed by the fact that he and the king are the only ones invited to the queen's banquet. And here they come for banquet number two. Now, what's happened in between? Well, first we have the king has softened toward the queen. We also have the king having been recounted about Mordecai's loyalty, his posture. He probably didn't, he didn't know who Mordecai was. He had forgotten all about it. But now it's present in his mind. The most ordinary of circumstances, a sleepless night, the reading of the minutes of the kingdom, and God orchestrates circumstances such that now Mordecai is present in his mind. And he's favorably disposed to the queen. And once again, after dinner, says, Esther, ask me anything. I'll grant you whatever you'd like. And at that point, she says, well, using the very words that he uses, he, he says, what's your wish and what's your desire? And she uses the very words, wish and desire, right back to him, kind of mimicking and echoing back and says, my wish is not to die. My desire is that my people wouldn't be slaughtered. And the king's like, what? What are you talking about? And then she reveals the plot. Because remember, the king himself hadn't ordered it. He'd allowed his authority to be placed in the hand of a wicked man. That signet ring allowed him to make the law. And so he says, who's done this? And then she turns to Haman says, he has. And of course, Haman's backing up at this point, right? The circumstances have worked against him. And his wife, who had earlier counseled about the gallows, right before dinner, we learn that she has said, you know what? If you're messing with the people of God, maybe you ought to rethink this. Maybe you should listen to his wife. Well, we also have another issue. God is beginning to orchestrate the circumstances to his purposes. And yet, the law of the Persians is such that once the king issues an edict or order, it's irrevocable once he's done it. So, so he's sort of caught. The king hasn't thought through all this. He didn't know Esther was a Jew, didn't know of her heritage. So what, how is God going to get out of this without violating the law of the Persians? Well, it's interesting Haman, by law, in a harem situation, remember, she's not his wife in the sense, husband and wife, we would know. She's the top person in the harem. She's property of the king. In a harem situation, you no man is allowed to be alone except the person who runs the harem, and he's named earlier, but no individual is allowed to be alone with anyone in the king's harem. The king, it says... In, in later in chapter six, uh, and af, after uh, what uh, we read, it says that the king storms out in anger of the room. Haman should have left by right. He should have left the room at that point. He should not have been alone with Esther. But of course, he's 
knows the jig is up. So he goes over to Esther to plead for his life, basically. And they're alone in the room. It's interesting. There's a, there's commentary. The Targum is Aramaic commentary on the Bible. And one of the things that's written there about the book of Esther is that at that point it says, Gabriel the angel gave Haman a little shove. Because as he's leaning over the couch to plead for his life with Queen Esther, he stumbles or trips and lands on top of her as the king walks back in. It's just like a telenovela, right? He just walks back in and the king says, oh, you're going you're gonna to assault my wife right in front of me? Hey, there's a gallows right outside, 75, a tree 75 feet high right outside. Let's make use of it. Peripety. The gallows meant for Mordecai is now the gallows on which Haman is killed. The signet ring is taken, it says, from Haman, and it says the king gives his authority to Mordecai. Peripety. Complete reversal of circumstances so that Mordecai, A, he was able to kill Haman and do that because of his violation of harem law, but also the king sort of saving face because he had ordered the edict for the Jews, but because he gives his authority to a righteous man, he is able to unwind the king's edict. All right, so that's that's kind of the plot of this, and it's, it's, it's a great story, and there's a lot, but here's what I want us to take away from this. God is always at work behind the scenes. When you look at all the things that had to have happened and put into place for all this to come about, we sang it this morning, right, in Waymaker, even when I don't see it, you're working. Even when I don't feel it, you're working. If you're a Christian, you can take confidence in the fact that God is orchestrating circumstances for His good. Now, caveat, That same principle we found in Joseph as he's sold into slavery. Not a great, not a great look for a godly man. Ends up in prison. And what what does he say? Joseph famously says, what you, my brothers, intended for evil, God intended for good. He was working. But it's, but guys, let's not make uh, you know, fairy tale of this. That was seven years in, that was in, enslaved to Ishmaelites, sold to Potiphar, jail unjustly. But God was still working circumstances. He works all things together for good. He works bad things together for good for those who, and this goes back to Esther, right? For those who are called according to his purpose. That means being willing to risk faith and stand in the presence of the king and being able to say, well, if I perish, I perish. That's being willing to not bow down when everyone around you is bowing down to the Hamans of the world to say, I will not. And to trust that God Almighty is working his purposes out through faith and obedience, not through your clever schemes. That's the thing. I want to do it through my clever working. But God works through faith and obedience. And that doesn't make sense all the time. Believe me. I know. 
We don't know who wrote the book of Esther. We know it was somebody who believed in one God. The Persians, like all cultures around them, were polytheistic. They believed in many gods, and the gods would duke it out. They would fight it out, and the gods were very capricious. They would change their minds all the time. So you didn't know from day to day what God was going to do. He was very fickle. These gods were quite fickle. We see that and read that. You can read it in Homer and, and the Greeks and other things. that The gods did what they wanted to do, and you could never count on it. You sacrificed and you hoped, but if, you know, if they got mad. But the writer of Esther knew that God, their God wasn't like that. He was working one purpose out. We call it redemptive history. He was working out his purpose from beginning to end. That's the other thing I want us to take away from this is that he is working out his purpose in you from beginning to end. I want to read you from Philippians 2. Verse 13 says this, It is God who works in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Part of that will be suffering. Part of that will be challenge. Part of that will be growth in your character. But to see God working through you it's nothing like it. It's hard to see God's hand at any given moment sometimes. It's really hard. He's, he's invisible sometimes, and it's, it's difficult. But when you look back, whether it's Joseph looking back and being the number two man in Egypt, not in Persia, but the number two man. Mordecai became the number two man in Persia. Joseph, the number two man in Egypt, he looked back and said, God was at work. I look back at the circumstances of my life, and at the moment it was difficult to see. But now as I look back, I think, God, you were at work, to will and to work for your good pleasure. Last thing I want to say is this. He still is the God of great reversals. We looked at those great reversals in there, but there's one great reversal that we can't get away from. Because there was another tree, right? Another S. And you think, boy, there's how could the Son of Man, God Almighty, Jesus Christ, come in human form, go to this tree and be sacrificed for you and for me? How, how could that happen? Well, here's the thing. He, the reversal was not Jesus. He went all the way. His obedience, his risk, if I perish, I perish like Esther, he perished. The hammer of justice did fall on Jesus. The great reversal is ours, not his. He went all the way because our reversal, what we deserved, he took. The great peripety of all time right, is that you deserve to die. I deserve to die for my sins. And if we decide that um, we know best, then part of what you'll have to do is pay for your own sins. Because if you don't want anyone else to pay for you, you either don't believe he exists or that's Stupid that God would kill his own son. That doesn't make any sense. Then 
you have the right to pay for your own sin. And yet, the great reversal God has offered to you freedom and that you don't have to pay and that your life can be exchanged for his. Would you pray with me, please? Lord, the the gospel is that our reversal was accomplished by Jesus' surrender. By Jesus' obedience. Lord, for those who don't know, who are still bearing the weight of their own sin, bearing the weight of their own life, I pray that they would decide to receive the great gift Lord, I thank you for this book of Esther, the way you are constantly at work, even when we don't see you, even when we don't read about your name itself, it's clear that you are at work in the circumstances of life for those who will trust you. Lord, lead us and guide us as individuals and as a church to commit ourselves to walking in your way and in your truth, to live our lives differently because we believe in a God of great reversal. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.